Welcome to Game Devs Quest, your once weekly podcast falling to Game Dev Scrubs into Game Devdom. If we can do it, you can too. I'm Rhett. I'm Taylor. And we're joined with Chris Delion of Hometown Home Team Game Dev. <laughs> Dang it! Oh, every time. Close enough. Maybe people will remember better that it's not Hometown if they hear the mix up. Uh, yeah, I've gone from one name people can't remember to another, but Home Team Game Dev. And and my other reflex I have to stop myself now is to not say dot com after it because like, to me it's like well that tells me how to find it but it also sounds like it's like two thousand one and like I'm I'm yeah. gonna go out of business any day now if I call it a dot com <laughs> and so please we need those clicks <laughs> that's right yeah I've got the hamster cannon commercial on the TV all that kind of stuff going uh, but yeah uh, and I guess I'll do the intro a bit for my podcast uh, of course often I record these instead as guest speakers at home team game devs. Uh, Sunday live meeting groups for the Apollo community. Now we have three different communities, uh, only Apollo, which we do the community uh, guest speakers in. Uh, however, this time we're doing it separately. This is just a chat between me and our hosts of Game Devs Quest, Rhett and Taylor, uh, as a bit of kind of just a, a change of pace, different kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, who knows we're going to talk about because this is kind of part two slash the sequel, I suppose, since uh, <laughs> August 2018, plus or minus, I guess September is when my episode version went up. We had a chat. And so we can talk about what yeah. has changed, what hasn't, um, what's completely new. But yeah, I think we can begin by saying the world is completely the same now as it was then. Just completely. Sort of Nothing's changed. Looking around us, it's like, wow, has any time passed at all? It's, it's basically <laughs> October 2018, as far as I can <laughs> Yeah, I can tell. It's beautiful outside, crisp fall weather. Big just... crowds of just, just people everywhere just doing normal things, like people traveling yeah. probably. Yeah, I went to the pub earlier after work. Mm, man, I, 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 Facebook keeps doing these things. It's like, look, you used to be around people. And I'm like, Facebook, no, you're embarrassing me. You put that down. Don't show me that. And it's also, it's even just weird now watching television shows with like, I don't know, like literally friends recorded in the 90s of how deeply uncomfortable it's like, get away from each other right now. Um, yeah, yeah. You cut that out. This can't have it. Bad. Ugh, yeah, there's I all just, kinds of. Go ahead, Dang it, Taylor. <laughs> I know, we're doing it again. I just I was just watching an episode of like This Is Us, and they're like all crowding in the car. And I'm like, why? What are you well, doing? Well, and here's the thing about This Is Us, right? So this show along with, so we also watch Superstore over here. We're, at Super, we're the, into these kind of shows. Um, they have overlapped with the pandemic. And so they have introduced masks as at least at the oh. start of the season. They show like, oh, we wear a mask and we're aware a pandemic is happening. But then... They are hiring expensive actors with, with like they're being paid for how pretty their faces are. So they'll yeah. walk up to each other, take their masks off to talk up at each other's faces to have a close up of the camera. <laughs> and we're just we're like, that is that is the opposite of what we wish you were showing the general public. We wish you weren't right. instructing them to like wear it at a distance when you enter the room, then take it off and just all cuddle together. Just, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm finding, uh, you know, maybe this is the time that I should be getting into acting because, you know, everybody says, right, you got a face for radio. Well, maybe I got a face for for COVID TV. That's here. right. You got a face for broadcast. Mask. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I wonder what's going to change once we I mean, if there even is a after COVID. But like you think about handshakes like are handshakes gonna not I, exist my, my vape, out can birthday candles my vague you know? theory for this is it's gonna be a generational marker in the same kind of way of and, and i hope this isn't gross anybody i was like why does the grandparent like not turn on the bathroom light when they, it's because like they lived during world war ii and like power was precious and everything was expensive and like meat was being you know rationed or whatever like a complicated yeah. history they have never fully recovered from uh, I think that's going to be us for the entire generation. They're going to be like, you know, why does uncle not go to the crowded parties or like, why does, why do they yeah. not shake hands? Why do they not do the birthday cake thing or whatever? And it's going to be like, oh, hell no. We're not even going to go there. I'm just done with it. Yeah. Um, never fully love crowds again. Uh, maybe some of us. Um, yeah. No, I, I never I liked them to begin yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, it's it like, an excuse to like, good, I really have been practicing for this for the past 35 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. You shake someone's like sweaty hand during a, an interview or something. You're like, this is gross, but 
I'll you do know, it because it's socially acceptable. Uh, yeah. But now you have that little awkward wave yeah. from a distance. The, the handshake is the one thing that I feel like ever gave me a social edge in the workforce, in professional <laughs> meetings, you know? So now that that's gone, I'm not sure what I have to hang on to. Well, yeah, the whole business degree wasted, which is mostly in how to shake someone's hand confidently and yank them at you and all that kind of noise. Uh, yeah, I've been I'd, relishing uh, turning down handshakes when people are going for it, though. You know, they're like, hey, how, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I hope you understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in some ways, so also the adaptation to going back to in-person things. And so this is I, I focus a lot on space. So I've still last last time we met, I was involved with Indicate. I still am. Uh, now I'm actually their alumni lead. But our past year, the event was fully online as was every other conference I've gone to in my entire life. I went to GDC online, went to Siege online, went to PAX online, went to whatever these things were now online. And there's obviously business to be had in crowds and people who will go back to these things once they can go back in person. But a large fraction of the audiences who let's get real or basically introverts to begin with and or already on a tight budget to begin with, like, yeah, it's not 100% as good to do it online. Is it at least 85% as good and costs like 2% as much? Yeah, I'm not paying for flights and hotels ever again in the rest of my life. It's just not happening. Yeah. If I can approximate that and find enough critical mass of other people who also want to not go to that stuff, and that's going to that's gonna just absolutely rattle the cage of anybody with that business model who at best are going to see 30 to 40% of the crowds back maybe ever, within yeah. which their generation of their mentors, their professors, their teachers, their bosses, their managers don't set the tone of, oh, I have to go to that every year. They're like, no, we do Zoom hangouts pretty regularly instead. And that's kind of enough for our situation, maybe, or that's how we can connect to vendors or we have other ways to make this yeah. work. And Yeah, you know, vendors, if they want to start schmoozing people uh, and stuff, again, you can start sending free packages to my house. I, I don't that's need to right. meet you in person. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because that's the only about the only thing I can think of is like networking that I really kind of enjoyed those conferences for. But beyond that, it's like, you know, you're looking at like showroom stuff. Like I hate showroom stuff. Like walking around on the floor of packs is fine for like an hour, you know, and then you're dealing with everybody's, you know, everybody crammed in here, like sardines. There's, you know, occasional hygiene issues. There's no smells uh, online. It's, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know, you know, I could miss some of those things, but if somebody finds a good way to do them forever online, like I'm, I'm totally down. I'm bought in. The, already, the other so. thing is also, we appreciate obviously is connecting with a whole bunch of audience for folks who, uh, so like say I run an alumni thing for Indicade. There's a whole bunch of people who maybe they were last Indicade 11 years ago, 13 years ago, 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever. This is the first time they've been back in a while because it was so simple, so inexpensive, yeah. so convenient. They didn't have to take a week off of work to fly somewhere. They didn't matter where they are in the world. If they're now on a whole different continent, didn't matter whatsoever, notwithstanding time zones. They could just do it, in which case staying up an extra hour, waking up an hour earlier, not quite as bad as once again, adjusting to time zones and travel and hotel and time off work, etc. And so it's so much easier to connect with more people across more generations and time, more spaces, people who, to be fair, don't want to deal with the hassle that is America's security policy and visa system coming into <laughs> the United States and our passport challenges and our airports. And I don't want to deal with that. And like I... I was born here, so I can only sympathize <laughs> with the friends who have gone through that to meet me here who will probably never be back if they have any other option. Um, yeah. For sure. <laughs> you know, this brings up a good question that I, that me and Taylor were wondering about earlier is that, well, you know, that y you've been like a real source of positivity. I mean, you know, you, you have your, your, your cynical moments <laughs> on Twitter and things like that, but you've been a real, a real source of positivity, at least for me and Taylor on Twitter. And, you know, I imagine that for all of the people that are signing up for home team uh, to to learn to make games and stuff like that, it's probably really positive for them, too. And I'm curious, the big thing at the start of staying at home or early on last year was like, hey, this is your time to, like, learn some new hobbies. Like, did that reflect in, like, home team it, registration? Pro and probably not as much as it should have. Uh, we, we've grown separately from that, but and kind of for better and for worse. Uh, the joke has vaguely been, because I've worked fully online for most of, like, the past five to seven years, if no one told me, and if, like, it <laughs> yeah. didn't make my wife work from home, I might not have noticed. Uh, like, it really didn't affect my routine, my business model, my whatever. Um, obviously, it's shaken up lots of other things, but in ways that I would not have noticed, except, like, Oh, I guess that event was canceled. I was going to go to or shoot. Why <laughs> yeah. is my friend, you know, so frustrated with their third year in college or whatever? Uh, but yeah, it's it didn't have a major impact in that sense. Now, a place where it might have is that and we just kind of discussed with the group today. 
Uh, obviously, so people on a home team, they're practicing not just like programming and art and design and project schedules and whatever. They're also, they're learning teamwork. And we focus that, you know, obviously learning to make it with teams where I can make bigger games, faster stuff. But also they're learning remote work. And to not take for granted that everyone in our group who's been consistently contributing and leading projects and releasing stuff have a proven track record of, I don't need someone breathing over my shoulder. I don't need yeah. to have you watched constantly. I don't need to, I can just get things done and build things and complete the objective and finish what you need done. And that has obviously become an asset to them career-wise in a way that matters more than ever for a whole bunch of companies that have to now be open to remote or even entry-level remote or otherwise in a way that before was like, well, you can kind of like snipe some contracts. There were some companies that did this, but it was still kind of weird or emergent. But lots of other companies have had to figure out how to do that. And we are people have a leg up and they specifically have this background as opposed to, well, they really prefer to be in like a classroom or an office setting, but they can try to make it work. This is what they make work. And so that has yeah. accidentally been a been a kind of hidden perk people using our approach to stuff. I started working home from from home in March of 2020, which is for me first time ever working from home. And I work for a city uh, doing software development, and I feel like the city was super against it at first, and then people started kind of like trickling home and and showing that you know it's it's actually not that bad. And now I think they're. Um, considering it as a possible like way to cut a bunch of costs, which I'm sure a lot of companies are doing. So I'm actually kind of excited to see where everything goes in the next like five years, considering this is like a trial run. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, even our so when home team started, and it's gone through several phases, obviously, it was called Game Keto Club when we last met years ago literally when it started years before that it was la game devs and we we met at a local at first a local rented or meeting room at a hotel and then weekly at a public library in beverly hills and when we shifted to doing fully online i didn't have to keep paying to rent a physical space that's expensive um yeah and it had downsides in addition to upsides and trading those pros and cons among them was like well now instead we can reallocate that funding to like provide a better service or have more support or do something else with it and it's not even necessarily just about, okay, well, can we cut some corners, save some costs, increase profit margins? Like, what more can the city do with that funding that it's not spending on space that really isn't necessary given the state of technology and amount of access to broadband and reasonable affordability of machines, or at least if nothing else, as a business expense compared to ongoing physical infrastructure, maintenance, security, all that stuff, which maybe there even still need some people to have some filing cabinets for reasons but it might not be 100% of the staff in the way it may be used to or something. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, and I know especially everybody is getting hit by COVID in terms of like losing revenue and stuff like that. So um, the one quirk we did have this. So uh, one of our trainers in home team, our, our engine unity expert guy, he's based in Taiwan. And a few of people he knows from his network, kind of like his IGD, they came to indicate online and they were talking about some stuff. And like, they haven't been hit so bad. Their government's been really having it under control. They're pretty solid. They've got like real quick quarantine practices and isolation and they, they handle this stuff. They've really kept it under control. And like they, you know, they couch us in a thousand disclaimers of like, please don't take this the wrong way. We don't, we're not jealous of what, what's happening in the United States, et cetera. <laughs> However, there's also a very real distinction that the US, the UK, basically everyone in the world besides New Zealand, Taiwan, and a handful of other places are having to experiment and adapt to meet new challenges and find new and different ways to do things that might be more remote friendly, that might be more distributed friendly, might be more time zone friendly, might be whatever the heck it is, that some other parts of the world aren't having to face those challenges. And what's worked well enough for the past century is still working right now as well as it did a year ago. Yeah. And they're a little worried about, are we uh, right now, again, grateful for it by all means and not wishing it was any different, but are they going to be comparatively a little flat-footed in five or ten years of doing some things in some slightly antiquated ways that are less efficient, more expensive, can't leverage yeah. talent elsewhere as easily as places in the world that have had to figure it out because the old way was not working well enough where we're at. Um, yeah. I, I find that I feel like most places just really want to drag their feet until there's no other option. You know, like where I'm working, I work for government as well. And uh, <clears throat> what's funny is uh, the particular agency I worked for, they, I'm pretty sure their, their COVID uh, response was going to be like, let's just tell everybody that we're going to try to move them remote and then drag it out. And hopefully this thing will end. Mm -hmm. And they dragged it out for a whole year. I mean, I just started working from home like two weeks ago, finally. 
And I had to go to an office and the rules were so strict. Sit at your desk, wear your mask 10 hours a day. If you go to the bathroom, only one person in the bathroom at a time, you know, like you can't get up and walk around. You can't talk to anybody. You need to talk to people on Skype. If you, It's like all of these things. It's like we're remoting from our desks in a weird way. Yeah. Why are we even going in? But beyond that, the office across the street, a different agency, of course, they, they were like, you know what? The governor might shut us down. We should get out now. And they got everybody set up remote in like a week, a week. And their agency is bigger than ours. It's like, what, what were you doing? And they're like, well, <clears throat> there's, uh, you know, there's security issues and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, uh, you know, my wife works from home for this agency and she's doing the exact, she's accessing the same exact databases and systems and internal infrastructure that we are. Um, so I don't see the problem. <laughs> like, can I just use her computer or something, you know? And they're like, no. There's this very real effect that, you know, and it's at the same time, you know, painful, but it's it's also very real. If I remember thinking as a little kid where, I don't know why this example comes to my mind. It's one I always still think about. Of Basically, people aren't going to change something until what they're doing right now isn't working for them. And the, the thing I think <laughs> yeah. about is like, could you invent a better mailbox if you really sit down and focus on what would make a superior mailbox? <laughs> Probably. Is someone's mailbox not doing it for them to the point that they care and are going to go out of the way and find your new mailbox? Probably not. And and that for so many things, it's like, hey, we got other stuff to worry about. We got family to worry about. We got stuff going on. I got things I already care about. I got things I'm already into. And until something fails them, they aren't going to yeah. try to improve. And so it's also it's like, heck, in the approach to what I'm doing very, very rarely are we the first thing somebody tries. Very few people are like, step one, let's go get some regular weekly training from like a whole framework of stuff. They first do some other stuff. And when they hit that wall of that ain't doing it, I have plateaued for too long. I'm struggling. Why is it taking me two years to try to do this unfinished thing? Then we get them joining us. Um, but yeah, it's it's people first try to see is what I'm doing. Can it work? And I don't know. There's There's just this weird... It makes sense. We got so many other things going on, but it is frustrating that that is sort of the, the nature of existence in some way. Yeah, yeah. I think you just described me, Chris. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like this close. I know that's so weird. The only thing left out is that you haven't joined yet, Taylor. So I know. Uh, Although, if you do, <laughs> literally, in, uh, this is too late by the time you watch this recording. If you apply today, uh, you would be a founding member in Lighthouse, our new third group, uh, and you would bypass the wait oh. period for that. Um, Dang. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, uh, you know, Taylor. That <laughs> <laughs> gets you a plus two towards our quarterly objectives as game changer status, which puts you a public itch collection on our public games portfolio. Um, I'm just saying, just putting that out there. It'd be cool to have you with <laughs> All us. Right. I got, I have until midnight. That's right. We did. We have one of the things we talked about last time. As I was again, like we've discussed before, this reviewing directly before this. What did I say years ago to kind of acknowledge? Was what I was like, how do we make this work for more people? And we had this flow rate problem of like, okay, if more than, I don't remember it was, three, five, seven, whatever, try to join in a week, we shut off the valve of like, couldn't register for the week because we figured out too many people joined too fast, they have a hard time latching into stuff, connecting, getting to know each other, finding their footing, acclimating, etc. Um, we've now gotten good enough at this that now our new approach is where this new group came from is we had enough people in our pipeline in the application list, we just spun up a third group based pretty close to the model of our second group. Uh, and we've gotten good enough at doing this that like we're able to reuse bits and pieces of our process materials, same support trainers, same services, same frameworks, but different people in different processes. And what happens is it's almost kind of like a college class of people who are coming in together, kind of already know each other. And we're able to kind of deploy that pattern in a way that works much better with relatively minimal. We have a couple of seed members who came across former leads from other groups uh, to kind of help get things started on. Here's how we do things. Happy to help answer questions too if you got them. Uh, but already like people are doing stuff and we're very quickly ramping up to matching the pace and fidelity of our group that had a year and a quarter head start, which already met the fidelity and pace of a group that had a five year head start. And so we're getting better at this problem of, uh, you know, I, I think the last time I phrased it, if everybody wanted to sign up tomorrow, we'd have a problem. Um, that's still true. A hundred percent, but less <laughs> true than it was then in terms of we're better able to handle uh, different options for how, what our application rates coming in. Nice. Yeah. Progress. Progress. That's right. <laughs> there, so the world's not totally the same as August 2018. Uh, that's right. Home team is growing. Home team is changing. That's right. Well, yeah. Yeah. A, lo <laughs> a lot of our changes have been less so in total numbers, difference of people than the percentage of how well it's working for people, how many of them are involved, how many of them are in, um, getting in-game credits and leading projects per week and those kind of things. Uh, we've, we've been able to dial all those up. I know last time I was kind of ripping on the gym club model. I hate of the businesses that operate on 
way more subscribers than they have room in their space for. Uh, we're sort of the opposite of I'm trying to maximize our density and really increase those odds if we get your results when you join because we are more likely to be fit. And there's still a chance someone joins or like this isn't really looking for, in which case that's fine. That's why we're week to week, you know, best of wishes out there. Go on and do something else. But uh, yeah, that's been a lot of our investment or time and energy in that. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah, I was excited. Uh, someone from our community just joined. Yeah, I was pretty excited seeing him jump in there, utilizing some some good tools, you know. Nice. Um, I was I was just trying to figure. So we have, I think, more than one person who may have had that nickname. But now I don't. I don't want to crisscross any of my back end notes. Uh, so I'm going to put my phone away. I also, would just say his real name, but I don't know how comfortable he would be. Did he what? use his real name on our podcast? Because he came on our podcast <laughs> as well. I can't remember to be honest. I, so I, so in, and this is so an example of where I get our process. So when we first started releasing games in October 2015 or whenever it was. Every single time we'd be like, how do you want to be in the credits? Because some people want their nickname, some people want their first name, some people want that last initial. Some people got stalker problems and only want to use an online handle that like is already anonymized or whatever. And now like when people register, they're entering, how do you want to be in credits? And when we're compiling credits in the game, like our system just conglomerates. Here's the nickname corresponding to these GitHub commits, etc. cetera. Uh, lets them edit that after the fact, make changes to it. Uh, but yeah, kind of trying to solve those issues because... It's very real. I mean, I've had people even in my in-person college groups who specifically didn't want to use a real last name on things for personal reasons. And again, no disrespect yeah. around that, but it is important to know. Um, <laughs> you know I wonder yeah. maybe that, that's an interesting question. I wonder if what you think on this is like, is there a future in game dev where you see like very professional people like getting credited with their nicknames? Oh, or yeah. Their no, it's, it's been happening huh. for years. Uh, so a lot of people don't know Cactus's real name. The guy who I think Hotline Miami and did a bunch of experimental indie games that were winning awards five, ten years ago. Um, he goes by Cactus or uh, huh. I think Queasy Games. More people know Queasy Games name uh but so basically people often stand behind a label yeah. for a variety of reasons sometimes it's just because their name is so maybe generic it's hard to search for or the name is hard to True. pronounce or say or spell like maybe my game keto llc is and so they use something <laughs> else that's an easier tag or label to find and so a variety of reasons um and of course i've also it's it's complicated but it's a one person thing i think we talked about before but the tendency i had early on was everything i just stuck christopher delion chris delion i just did everything by name and then I started liking about changing up my URLs over there, interaction artist and hobby game dev and this, that, and the other. It was I could shed it like a snakeskin and move on from it and just leave yeah. that behind and be like, no, that's hobby game dev. What I'm doing now is a totally different approach. Totally different. That's the interaction artist series. That's different than what I'm doing now with my YouTube <laughs> channel or something. Yeah. That's that's actually a good a thing really for good us point. to think about. <laughs> Rhett well, and I, <laughs> well, Rhett and I, so since, since COVID, uh, we've kind of slipped off the edge a little bit and haven't been as active and, Fair. <laughs> um, as, as everybody probably, but, yep. um, and so we've been talking about GDQ 2.0 for a long time and it's, I don't know. We started off with this common goal of like, let's learn how to make games and document that. And hopefully that helps other people. And as time went on, like, we started to most of our episodes are just us hanging out, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, not actually accomplishing anything. And that's sort of a different phase. And now we're kind of in this other phase where we feel like we want to focus a lot more on quality as opposed to like before it was just like, let's churn out an episode every week. And we did that for two, two years, a week and ep or episode every week, whatever. Um, but maybe it's worth considering like a full on rebrand, not just like a, relaunch or something yeah, you have to, yeah, you have to play the full point. gdq 1.0 to really follow the story of gdq 2.0 and yeah <laughs> classic problem right yeah so, as you true. drink out of your gam keto mug that's right <laughs> well so it's still gam keto llc is the company the service oh, okay. the home team game dev yeah gotcha cool yeah taylor come on <laughs> Fair. <laughs> well, because I, I have other business. I have other products and things connected to Game Keto LC. So, like last time I alluded to, I was working on a productivity audiobook, Self Command. That's now in the hands of like over a thousand people, and people responded well to that. And that's uh, this whole thing nice. for when you mean to do something and you're not doing it. What's up with that, and what to do about that? Uh, and it's just this like combination of like simple techniques and practices and ways of thinking about stuff that help. Kind of okay, I worked with a lot of people who knew what they wanted to do, had the means to do it, had the techniques or the hardware or whatever, but weren't doing it. And help them find ways past that to unblock themselves and keep doing it. Um, also alluded to last time, the stoicism interest that I have is kind of a way of thinking. Released the whole public modernization of an entire classic stoic book. 
uh, selfcalm.com. That's totally free. And the audiobooks bundled with my productivity book because it kind of overlaps a little bit in Headspace. Um, but those are like, for example, GAM Keto LLC things that aren't necessarily home team specific. Now, people in home team do I get see. access to everything I make. They have those included with membership, but they kind of exist in sort of separate pockets of, you know, brand control kind of stuff of uh, people used to, for example, only hear the podcast and be like, is that the group? And I'd be like, no, um, not really. It is sort of a, a <laughs> content we spin off from it. But can you can you dig into um, I forget what you called it. The first one, the about productivity one, like, self-command. Yeah, because yeah. I don't know. I, I tried to line up some some questions and get my thoughts organized <laughs> before you know starting the, that podcast today. And I don't. You you always seem like you're achieving things. I, oh, you know well, what I mean, so and, and then, so basically, like, this is sort of the preface of the book is explaining. I'm not claiming you're going to do stuff great. Um, I'm claiming you're <laughs> going to do stuff. And this is where like, I'm, yeah. so in this again, where I even time, I cranked out daily YouTube videos for like, I've got over like almost like 900 YouTube videos an hour or something for years, released a ton of podcast episodes, wrote several textbooks myself, et cetera. Um, not all of them were super great received. Not all of them were like super viral, not super wonderful, but I did them. And until you get yourself to do them, you don't have any shot at maybe the odds of being a favor, maybe the timing will line up. Maybe it's going to be a good collaboration that's going to happen or whatever. And really, it's just focused first and foremost on like the objective is to do the thing. And if you're doing the thing and you did it the best of your ability and did it from what you knew at the time, that's kind of all you can aim for. And beyond that, uh, it's got a variety of ways of thinking about that and uh, our judgment about do I regret doing it? Because part of the story of this bind. So a common example I use in there, and this is a story I think echoes back to an older YouTube video I had. Um, did I talk about last episode? I only heard like 1.5%, uh, <laughs> 150% of our two episodes we recorded. Um, the thing about like the farmer and the wheat and the rice or whatever thing that I rambled about that last time we talked two years ago. Grant, it might be yeah, a new I audience by now anyway. So, okay. so the, <laughs> the, in, everyone. So yeah. the, the, the gist here, and I'm, even despite being from Northern Missouri, I'm not a farmer and I didn't consult my farm friends. So these facts are probably not great, but let's pretend like you inherit some farmland and for some sort of, I don't know, chemistry, biology, you name the reason, the land's got to be used all for one kind of crop or the other. And you're trying to decide, do I want wheat? Do I want to grow rice? What am I going to put there? Or soybeans, you take your pick. Let's say wheat or rice. One of these works better if it's rainy. One of these works better if it's a dry season. And you're trying to, like, figure out, okay, well, if I talk to the weather experts, what should I do? And let's say there's, like, an 80% chance it's going to be dry. So you plant the ones that's better for a dry season, and then it rains. And like this comes up all the time in life. I did what I thought was right from the information I had. It was seemed like the sensible thing. And a lot of people will kick themselves and be like, I should have planted the other thing. And the answer is no, you should not have under any circumstance. Should you retrain right. how you do it next time? No, you should still do the thing that 80% says it's correct. Um, you weren't yeah. wrong to have done what was the right thing at the time from the information that you had. And even little things like this, again, we start to kick ourselves over like, well, it didn't succeed uh, did you do everything as well as you could from the stuff you knew at the time? If it was, that's all you can ever do. That's literally the, like, that's the state of yeah. the universe. Um, and you might then from that pivot, which you do in the future, but that's different than feeling bad about having got yourself to do the thing. Cause what starts to happen is there's too many times we sort of like touch the fence that shocks us and we just stop trying because I can't tell the world's too chaotic. The, th the first time that we spoke, Chris, you said something that I repeat almost daily. I think it was you anyways. <laughs> and you said, you, you said it's it's like asking a lottery winner, you know, what their secret is or like the trick to their success. Yeah. You know, it, you know, you ask somebody who wins the lottery, who plants the right crop and gets the right weather. They're going to be like, do it exactly like me. Yep. And you're going to be fine. And you're going to do it exactly like them. But the weather is going to be different. You can't control the weather, you know. That's something you see all the time is like people in game dev and also like I'm, I'm really tightly wound with like the creative writing community and like and, and different music making communities and, and people are like, well, what's going to be the next trend? You know, what's going to be the next Hunger Games type thing I can pursue or the next Twilight is like, dude, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, <laughs> like, you just got to you just got to make the thing. Yeah. You know, and, and if it's good, it's going to find its audience. And if it happens to align with a trend, congratulations, you won the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who's actually knowing those uh, did not predict it. They got lucky from starting when they did. And as soon as it's concretely calculatable that, like, the world actually does want a first-person World War II shooter, companies can <laughs> invest real resources in doing it in a way you probably cannot. <laughs> just will not. And you're just going to lose that fight. Uh, yeah, if there's land that, like, international militaries know there's value in fighting over, you're not going to step in there and win it. 
That's not how it's going to work. If you find something that's way off the radar that I'm paying attention to, haha, don't tell them. Um, but like, <laughs> yeah, that's where you got to be. You got to be out there in the exploration space. And the other bit that's so important to me too is the there's different reasons why we do stuff. Um, one of which can be to earn money from it, et cetera. There's nothing wrong with that. But out of which, so we've had people who've joined Home Team Game Dev in the past because they had figured out how to make games that made them money. But the kind of games they had to make that made them money in the modern market space weren't, they, they didn't want to make that. That was not at all why they cared to make games. And they were like, I completely lost track of the reason why I was doing this was because to be like kind of morbid, by the time I die, there's certain things I would like to have made. And this wasn't doing it. And if the way it's done is I basically, and like, so again, I'm also indicate a ton of their projects are frankly subsidized by people who are professors, people who have day jobs at AAA companies, people who do software engineering as their main gig or something, is it just making sure there's a roof over their head, lights on, and internet connection, frankly subsidize a project because they wanted it to exist, because they wanted to do it, because they want to learn how to do this, because they want to just see this thing come to existence. And like, that is a different reason to do something. And, and that's, again, valid to do it for either or both. And occasionally there's some Venn diagram overlap. People love to listen to those talks. They are the rarity, the exception um, out of the space of things I can do, things I want to have done, things that the market space wants me to have done. Uh, as, a, as a tricky Venn diagram, there's lots of space outside of if we don't limit ourselves to only what can pay for itself. A lot of art won't. A lot of writing may not. Um, doesn't make it not worth doing. It means we got to find some other way to kind of fit that into our lives and... Uh, yeah. kind of recognize the purpose in it. Well, that's the interesting thing. And I really find this most often in the game dev community itself is this idea of like monetizing what you're doing. And I understand why, because it's, if, if you can, if you can make some bread with what you're doing, then you can spend more time doing it and you can, you can enhance your skills with that extra time. But imagine how crazy we would look at every single kid who picked up a guitar and was like, I need to make money or this isn't worth it. Yeah. Like, Nobody yeah. picks up the guitar and is like, I need to make money doing this. Yeah, yeah. You know? I'm a failure at sports if I don't become a pro. Why did I even yeah. waste the time playing baseball? <laughs> what a ridiculous waste of my years and youth. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I think it's valuable to have goals that might include like up like sales or yeah. some sort of like financial incentive. And that's fine because that's like a benchmark of progress. It's like one metric, you know, that you can plug in. But other, it's just a, a way to like really send yourself down an unhappy path. And, and you can start asking yourself, well, what's the point of doing anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for me, that's, that's been a lot of my time during COVID, like just trying to figure out what makes me happy, you know, stop worrying about being productive and start doing stuff that actually makes me happy, you know? And I'm sort of in this, like, I feel like since our podcast started and, and everyone's heard me talk about it, but it's like I, I basically went down that path where I burned myself out really heavily yep. by trying to build something that I could sell. And since then, I've honestly never recovered from, from it. I still make games, not like obsessively like I did when we started. But honestly, it's not even worth it. If it doesn't make you happy, like why are you even doing it? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I bring this to you, Chris. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, you were talking about like all of the YouTube videos you've made, all the podcasts that you've done, like everything that you've done, like this is getting deep, I guess, but do all, do, those things, do all those things make you happy? Like yeah. do you feel like everything you're doing, so, like yes. what's the balance so, so, for so, you? You know as, what I mean? As said last time, um, I very much, if I had infinite money and I still definitely don't, but if I did, it may not actually change that much about what I do, how I'm doing it, et cetera. I'm very much doing the things that I feel is like the ethical way to do it, an effective way to do it for people I want to help, the way I want to help them, et cetera. Um, and a lot of what I do, whether it's the video courses, the eBooks, the uh, audio books, et cetera, is some part of it is thinking in terms of, and again, just is what I think of for, uh, I don't know, probably an arbitrary reference point. But so I had some old Packard Bell computer I grew up with. And at some point it went super kaput, like way gone. I'm sure if I spent enough money, some like data recovery company could resuscitate somehow get data off these discs but for all intents and purposes it's trash and what i thought about with that was like anything that wasn't printed off of that or copied off of that etc is just gone doesn't matter it was ever on that drive lost forever and again at a bit of like let's get deep here and worry about our mortality um <laughs> anything we don't externalize before we die which none of us have any we have guesses but like we might have less notice um anything we don't get out of us before we do is like gone gone 
probably not coming from an expensive data recovery company either. Uh, and so there's something where if there's some lesson I'd like to pass on, something I'd like to share, something I found useful to might help others, I look for can I externalize that somehow? Uh, and that's also where even if it's initially in something where it might not have a big reach, might not have a big audience, et cetera, kind of like you've said, you know, you've talked through a bunch of different times of podcasts and maybe that's even, I would guess, helped you come to some realizations. A lot of my blogging helped me get deeper in my thoughts where I would have a small audience when I was blogging for years at Hobby Game Dev. But me writing it got me a layer deeper because it got it to kind of just dug away that layer of thoughts. And then I do that again and again until I kind of find something in that little mining of like, here's a thing worth sharing and saying more. And then I do something better with that. And so oftentimes when I'm doing a lot of content, it's like when I was uh, doing those hundreds and hundreds of YouTube videos, a lot like shots here, like the rice and the wheat story was like one of those. And it became a part of the, the self-command audiobook material or like different sort of techniques in there about prioritizing, about deciding what to do next and why came from trying a lot of stuff. And a lot of it is kind of spaghetti at the walling. What's going to stick? I don't know, yeah. but I can keep trying it and figure out what's the overlap of like, I can say it and it makes sense and it resonates with people and people get it. Um, and th th I don't think there's any shortcut past this stuff either. So there's a old philosophy of little bets or some book around it. Uh, but even like the examples that they would use is like famous worldwide, successful HBO special comedians, 40 years into the career, still start by going to a small room of 25 people at a bar unannounced and read off some pre-written jokes, most of which don't land, to even figure out, okay, which ones are going to snowball to the next bigger setting? And they do that, and do that, and do that, and then it's where it's like the 30th time they put on this live show, that's the one they put on it at Netflix. That's the yeah. one they sell to HBO. Because you don't know until you try some stuff what's going to stick, how do people respond to it, and, and you just got to create that space for yourself to keep taking those swings the 90% of the time it's not working to feel out, I'm a, find the stuff. I'm always really floored by... You know, because I, I, I have a lot of creative hobbies, a lot of creative passions, and it's really hard. I jump from one to the next all the time just to keep moving. And I'm always floored by just how much of like the stuff that comes up in, in, our, in these game dev talks. It's like so applicable to other stuff. You know, you jump into comedy, but it's the same thing for, for fiction writing. It's the same thing for making music. You know, I remember like I did a challenge years ago where it was write one song a week for a year. And I did that. And guess what? You have a 42 god awful garbage <laughs> songs but you got like maybe 10 yeah. eight like nuggets you yeah. know and no 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 shortcut to have gotten to those eight or ten no that's yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and and it's the same thing with writing you know it's like i always i always cringe because the same thing happens in all of all of the game dev uh community like on on reddit and things like that where people ask these really like low effort questions and you know, I understand why they're asking them and I understand where people are coming from, but it's the same thing in writing. They're like, well, how do I write this book? <laughs> and unfortunately, the only real <laughs> advice that people can give is like, well, you just got to write. And they're like, yeah, but how? And they're like, well, you grab a pen and you grab a paper and you write. <laughs> and they're like, but what? <laughs> you know, well, they, they I, think to it. It's a, this is another point that comes up in self-command uh, of basically a lot of where people also stop themselves before they do stuff is this fear of what if I'm bad at it? And, and mm -hmm. like, and basically the way over that is to be like, you're going to be bad at it. You're new at it. Yeah. Stop pretending like there's something you can do where if you just like read enough, you're not going to like fall off a bike the first time you get on it. That's how you learn to ride a bike. You fall off it. Uh, you're not going to like suddenly pick up a guitar and like now people want to buy tickets and come see you on the stage. You're going to be bad at it. Just reframe it as I'm new at it. And that is the process and the path through it is being bad for a while and like doing it anyway, longer than other people who gave up from being unsatisfied well i didn't naturally have an affinity for this yeah, kind of not really anybody does for anything if we get down to the tax of it like that's not how things work you know taylor and i were talking about before this and it's and it, we were talking about how much kind of imposter syndrome we have sometimes when when doing all this sort of stuff but the best thing about having a professional career educator on the show is that like you just talking and i'm like i'm doing it right yeah you're doing it yeah. right yeah you're doing it when you get like doing it at all is doing it and, and part of what a lot of people make the mistake is that they'll screw up a few times and then they'll quit doing it when like anybody who has experience the reason why they have experience and why it's worth something is because they don't make the same mistakes they've already made and they're just yeah. throwing out the progress they've made on all the landmines they won't step on because they already have unlike any other person who it's their first week on the gig gonna make yeah. those same screw-ups yeah. I mean, heck, you watch Adam Savage on Tested doing the one day builds and almost every single time he's like, well, I screwed this up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think this through. I didn't have the right materials. I should have went to the store. Like, you know, he's been doing it for decades and he's still making mistakes doing his stuff. It's 
Yeah, it's something to think about. I mean, life is failure. It's just a series of failures, one after or, another. Well, again, but I, I think, again, this is where for me, and I only kind of because I think to me it's a, it's a it's a framing problem. If I wouldn't even frame it as failures, that is just doing it. Yeah, that is literally yeah. the act of doing it. The failure is not. I mean, the failure is not doing it. It's not yeah. releasing stuff that's at least bad because you're not doing it at all. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Um, we had a question that, uh, from one of our listeners in the, in our discord, I wanted to find it real quick. Sure. Um, I, I have it ahead. up here. Oh yeah, yeah please. So this is from, uh, Flippo, his name, his name's Felix. Uh, he asks, is, is there any aspect of games that is unique to the medium that could be utilized more? Yeah, that is a great question. And one that I'm, uh, hyper excited about and also simultaneously feel like uh chris crawford who was on our podcast today like a gdc founder legend of the game industry stuff um he sort of has admittedly spent his most of his adult life and career beating his head against the interactive narrative space of like procedural dynamic interactions with people and their complexity and the difficulty of cracking that problem and i i only use that example because like, i'm not an interactive narrative person not a procedural generative person but i am uh i spent a bunch of years and a bunch of time when I did the Interaction Artist series, it was like 219 nightly micro gameplay prototype experiments, just thrashing at stuff. Part of what inspired me to do that was basically this interest in, okay, well, there's things that prose says better. There's things that drawings say better. What can we say better with interactivity? And I wanted to try to like even splice at that problem better than we had beyond copy pattern of this sold well, people like this, this is entertaining, which is all valid. But what else can we say and do with it? And it was just so much there be dragons of difficulty finding that space. It's both a belief that it's there. It's a sense that we've learned certain things in our lives through the games that we've played. And I think that the, certainly the one I always go back to because it feels the most culturally understood is so, and this is where I'm glad to see esports in schools and other stuff for a whole bunch of people, uh, for many generations of human existence, I suppose thousands, at least maybe hundreds of thousands sports were this analogy and last episode, I used a ton of sports analogies because it's still how I kind of explain it because against Secret Meathead. Um, but like <laughs> it was this thing about like accepting loss gracefully, things about like practice paying off, things about determination, things about like the Michael Jordan quotes and the Wayne Gretzky. And you miss every shot you don't take. And these just metaphors about teamwork and whatever. And if you had a certain build and you were built a certain way and a certain height and kind of your body responded certain ways to nutrients and exercise in a certain way, you got to learn these lessons firsthand. And if you weren't, you're reading like page day calendar quotes and like, hopefully it sticks. And what I've liked about games, it's created for an enormously larger percentage of the population who may not be built like a refrigerator or like seven feet tall, an equal opportunity to go through those things of like seeing practice pay off, seeing the determination, seeing the teamwork come to fruition, going through like I was bad at it, but I didn't have to make the system easier. I had to make myself better. And like these kind of like personal enrichment opportunities that used to require a human coach, a human time, a facility, a sports rink, a field, uh, things that are also, I don't know if expensive, more expensive than not having them at all. Uh, it's, 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 I like the amount of people in the world who have been able to have this kind of experiences firsthand of going through those, growing through those, um, and including which, so the other nice thing about games, and maybe for better or for worse, downside too, and the same thing also goes for academia. So we talked earlier about like this, this challenge of what if I do the right thing and it fails? Uh, which is a very real thing all the time in business and sports and art and everything. You can do everything right and it still just, just you know, totally blows up in your face. Uh, part of what's nice about what academia tries to do and what games typically try to do is contrive a scenario. So if you do what should have been the smart thing, it pays off. And if you do what should have been the wrong thing, it's pretty clear like, no, you did it wrong. You did it bad. Doesn't always quite how it works out for a variety of reasons. But at the very least, it's a consistent scenario in which you can try to train you towards you should make decisions the following way. You should think about things the following way. You should explore more. You should look around. You should see things differently. Um, those things, I think, have been real success in that space. Uh, I just had a – I do a weekly email list now at gamedevtraining.com. There's a little plug. That's a free weekly email list thing that I do. So I was fascinated nobody else took game dev training. I guess nobody else was – I don't know, overconfident <laughs> enough to be like, yeah, that's me. I do that. That's me. And that's like my free list. That's my separate side thing. But like uh, my most recent one I wrote for that had to do with this thing of uh, I made I really like the book Walden by Henry Avery Thoreau uh, about 10 years ago. So I want to make a little micro experimental game 
where I took these snippets of free public domain audio readings by Gord McKenzie. Got a lovely voice and an expensive microphone. And he like had done a full recording of the book. I took chunks of that and I tried to splice them together into characters and do stuff with it. But there was one quote in it that kind of stood out that was like, if I could see the world from the eyes of others, how what a miracle that would be. And I'm totally butchering Thoreau's words from 150 years ago. But then the next project that I did that was an indie game was a bunch of college students went back to grad school called Vision by Proxy Second Edition, where literally you're playing an alien who, uh, like, you're, you're half your body's your eyeball. You're just this, like, really goofy-looking uh, alien. Looks kind of like the thing from Monsters. And, like, you're blinded by Earth's light because the sunlight's too bright compared to the planet you're from, so you have to steal human eyes to get around. And there's three different people's eyeballs you can steal. You can steal the architect's eye. You can steal the child's eye, little girl. You can steal the gardener's eye. Gardener sees growth where the others don't. And so you can, like, climb vines and stuff. The architect can see inside buildings that appear solid to there so you can go where they couldn't. The child, like, turns the clouds into flying bunnies. She can ride across the sky and stuff. And so you can get places you couldn't when you see the world literally from other people's perspectives. Felt like that's, like, super ham-fisted, over-the-top metaphor <laughs> of, like, couldn't be more blatant about what we're trying to get across here. But it also kind of worked. <laughs> But anyway, that was like a little 15 minute game. And this is the other thing that I kind of go back to for the space too is where a lot of people, especially in the indie scene, start out struggling, trying to make platformers about something, which this thing was a platformer or games about a topic. Um, Darius Kuzminski, a super smart guy. I think he might have been the chair of IGDA for a while. Probably not mixing up at least for a chapter or something. He does a ton of online bots and writes all kinds of interesting academic stuff about AI stuff. But he wrote one that was basically like a whole presentation slide deck about like, why are you actually trying to use a game to explain this? Like what you're really trying to get at. So look, the thing I pointed is made. I also just explained it in like two sentences. Cause oftentimes we'll spend a ton of time and energy throwing <laughs> months into like trying to make this metaphor. And if it's whatever, and it's like, yeah, but also you could just like write the sentence down and have established your point. Um, and fair. And obviously this is where like a lot of art, it's like, okay, well ballet may not be teaching me a different concept per se, but is it somehow more memorable? Does it touch me in some different ways? Doing some different function that's harder to articulate than why I read a textbook, than why I read a how-to text, you know. And, and probably um, these are still worthwhile culturally for existing in a totally different wavelength and way. And the other thing that I've also liked about them, and this is more from the creator side than the consumer side, is very much this thing of part of why Home Team exists and thrives is that any given musician can just chuck songs on SoundCloud. Any given programmer can just chuck code in GitHub. Any given artist can just upload the stuff to DeviantArt, et cetera. When you start weaving this stuff together, a significantly larger audience of human beings who may not be interested enough to browse a SoundCloud or to browse a DeviantArt or to go read GitHub code is more likely to actually appreciate the symphony of these things all stuck together in some coherent way. And that is something which certainly games have a huge leg up on. Not only in our ability to do it, which arguably, again, like film and TV also succeeded that too, but they also take an incredibly astronomical budget to do it. The amount of people on Earth who get the opportunity to put things on television and in movies or even, heck, in YouTube at a usable, decent production quality are so slim compared to the amount of human beings who have everything they need to author this stuff with free or cheap pixel art tools, programming tools, etc. Uh, and this is where part of my sort of aspirations in life for world vision stuff very much come back to like if everybody had a grand piano in their house and nobody played a piano you'd be like that ain't right what's going on but like oh so many people and not 100 but some people have computer hardware in their home that is perfectly capable for developing games on that is everything that they would need hardware wise to play that piano and i wish that it was at least as common and as normal and as widely done as like making music and accepted as to and maybe it already is for some ages and cultures and backgrounds and environments or cities or something of you know uh that's jemmy plays piano this is jen she makes games and nobody even skips a beat on like of course they do like that's just the yeah. thing that we do as a culture like and yeah. tim writes short stories yeah yeah that's such a personality everybody does that because <laughs> Everybody has a computer. Well, and this is where you can tell that things aren't quite there when we have Twitter handles like I make games or like Jerry, yeah. the programmer, which like is nothing wrong with it either. But it's because out of where they went to high school, they were the only human being that knew who did. Yeah. And like, well, and we're still, the case for so we're many still shedding. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think we're still shedding an old cultural thing, too, where, you know, you're expected to go to school and get a career doing something mundane and and creating games in a way is a very mundane thing, but not anybody, not very many people do it. You know, Taylor and I came from a really, really small high school where 
I, I lament the fact that had one person known anything about the music industry, <laughs> like if if one person had known anything about the music industry, that's probably where I would have been because it's taken me now 12 years to learn anything about it. Yep. And yeah, like I have some like professional chops that I'm really proud of and I, I get to perform and I get to sometimes work in a studio and I can do the, some of this stuff from home now, but like, I could have shed 12 years of like, fi like figuring it out on my own. If one person had just been like, by the way, that's something that you could do. Did you know that? I'd be like, what? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's who, whose parents happen to be able to come in for career day of like, yeah, what do you mean? Exactly. That's a job. Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, and I you know at our high school, it was like, all right, well, like you could go be a lawyer or a, a I don't know what I, I remember at career day in general where they were like, you could be a logger, a farmer, or a lawyer. <laughs> I was just like, what? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would guess, though, that even now, um, barring COVID, the opportunity for that sort of thing at our tiny high school has has probably, like, increased massively since we were there. Like, we didn't have a single programming class in well, my high school. What they started doing smartly is they started partnering partnering with the larger school districts and they would bus kids over to, yeah. to partake in the programs that our school couldn't afford. So right. like, whereas our school, you know, th this is such a small thing, but like when I was there, we didn't have shop class. We had nothing like that. By the time I left, they were busing kids over to the next school, just a few miles down the road so they could take shop class. And, you know, we were, I think like, we were really lucky that we had band and we had some opportunities like that. But as far as like any other extracurriculars, we barely had any science extracurriculars or, you know, um, electives rather. Uh, we barely had any, like, I mean, there was like a, a girl in my class that had to like invent the advanced math courses with the teacher in order to like continue <laughs> taking math courses because yeah. she capped out our school's educational program. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. We had some of those as well for our, our physics was like, one girl in the physics professor who like had an AP physics textbook, she would try to invent exercises from and stuff and uh, <laughs> is small town, Northern Missouri. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like you say, there's actually, so shop class is another example. So shop class is one of like my favorite things I did in high school. And people are like, what would you do if games were around? I'd probably be a woodworker. Um, <laughs> I took like advanced woodworking, took several years of this stuff, started in middle school. And it's probably because the same reason why I'm making games and podcasts and audiobooks. And I like making stuff. Yeah. I like yeah. to have a thing where there was proof I did it because now something exists that didn't. And I can be like, look it, see, I did it. Ha, told you. And you can't like argue like, no, it's not. I'm like, yeah, it's right there. Mm, what are you going to do? Yeah. And like, there's that joy about so much learning from that process. And this, again, this is the need for like to work against the material and figure out its properties and whatever that also in the same way as like the sports learning again, for development side, more so the consumer side, we get that. And a lot of like my model yeah. for how I frame my stuff. We talked a lot last time about my dojo model is actually like my curriculum is partly inspired by literally our shop class or how Mr. Vaganya had us like make a certain like make a gavel to learn the lathe and like uh, use learn to use the router by making a picture frame. And we do a project yeah. just for an excuse to learn this thing. Same way I have to make a 70s game to learn the mouse and putting colored boxes on the screen and then a breakout yeah. game to learn how to make a tile map, map thing and uh, very much that kind of lesson in a way that again, it's nice because there's no materials. You're not having to ship in lumber. You're not having to like, I'm out of nails. There's no liability risk of a lot of schools. Like I think the one I went to probably had to drop south class because you can only lose so many fingers before the school district <laughs> is like, we can't do this. This is not the world of tomorrow and our parents aren't having it, but it's safe. Um, it doesn't require a bunch of place to store. And it can also this access, access same reason why online uh, pandemic world is in some ways a slight equalizer, not to overstate that point either. People's access to each other and resources and communities of in small town Midwest, like I, we were also in the last on the list of any business to bring a chain there of any <laughs> like practice or program for schools. It was going to find its way down the trickle train from like the coast to maybe yeah. St. Louis to maybe Kansas city. And then somewhere down the line, a few steps later, like let's say, see if our school in St. Joe would catch whatever it was. Uh, but like, that was also where a lot of what enabled me to, get beyond who I happen to know locally was the internet and was technology and was access to perspectives and books and in uh, input thoughts elsewhere and a way that now I love the idea that somebody, no matter where they are in the world. And again, this is again, a, a optimistic overstatement. It's not a hundred percent. It's not equal everywhere. Broadband is, but we're close enough to feel it. And that's so much better yeah. of the chance that like, uh, I get people that my favorite, we've had recently, I think we passed 300,000 people have taken my online courses 
And a lot of questions I answer are like names I can't spell or pronounce. And I love that. I love that I've, yeah. I've, I've had no way to reach this person otherwise. They're going through my curriculum stuff. They're learning stuff. They're doing things. And occasionally they'll reach like respect. They found a job doing that kind of stuff in their country where they're doing things. And I'm like, that's great. And they're earning good money for where they're living, doing the stuff. And that's just so nice that it didn't come down to, well, supply and trade couldn't justify the size of our community or, or what country we're in or whatever non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's something think, for us too. I don't know. Like not that we have 300,000 people or are, are making money or any of that stuff, but like <laughs> the fact that we have a community and we have people from all over the world in it. Yeah. I love it. I, I feel accountable to them. Yeah. You know, I feel like I need to start, start or continue making stuff and building my skills just so I could keep people in there and going and all that kind of stuff so yeah it's like encouraging in a weird way you know it really is i mean that's the one thing is like i always weigh the benefits versus like the costs i guess of 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 this interconnectedness of the internet because on one hand it sometimes feels like we're we've discovered fire for the first time like it's like it's like this amazing tool and it could redefine our our species in so many amazing and clever ways but also like you could burn down the world with it you could burn down entire ecosystems hypothetically slash <laughs> yeah definitely happened several times already <laughs> like in the past year <laughs> definitely happening right now as we speak uh, um, literally in the middle of it all the time well my favorite part is it's not even clear which way you're talking about that there's like at least three or four we're probably both like vaguely alluding to we're like we're probably the same one it doesn't matter because it can't even narrow uh, yeah well yeah. so and here's where so this is where the optimism that i find in there uh and so i've been i've been reading technopoly by neil postman neil postman uh sort of a uh super intellectual media critic from long ago i think he passed away maybe 15 17 20 years ago or something but he, he like main thing he's known for is he music ourselves to death where he basically predicted the challenges of having news become entertainment 24 seven and like how that yeah. affect our discourse and things. And technopoly instead is about the relationship people have to information where you basically, it hurts to say this like in 1992, 30 years ago predicted pretty much Twitter of like information at volume and velocity, regardless of any utility or use to anybody and the problem that that creates. But one of the things he talks about in there is this thing of, like the previous system was basically constrained around protecting us from information we shouldn't have access to or shouldn't use. Or as much as we don't think about this, like schools really kind of were designed post printing press to help people figure out what writing to give any credibility to and what writing to be like, no, nah, this probably isn't legit. <laughs> uh, and that in many ways, obviously yeah. it hasn't kept up with that challenge. But I think like some of the upside is that this is sort of the first time in history that we are solving this particular problem of it actually overlaps the same thing that it used to be the case like well you don't get to be on a stage or have a voice right. or write a book unless you know like one mm. of 10 people in new york city unless you have a phd in your field unless whatever and that's got us downsides too and part of the upside of fact anybody can release a game anybody can make a blog anybody can put a youtube video up etc is for the first time we're grappling with okay well there are also some pros to that i'm not saying they outweigh yeah. the cons <laughs> But now what? And and it's got yeah. this sort of thing of it, it lets us no longer safely ignore the fact that like, well, they don't have any way to do anything anyway, so it doesn't really matter how wrong they are. Yeah. It makes us accountable for like, how do we catch people up on things that matter? And that's on us to figure out. I wish there was any real life examples that we could draw from. Yeah, I, I, you know, like, hypothetically, you can see where Neil Postman's like referring to like it might someday become a thing, but yeah, not now, clearly. Yeah. Well, and so this um, is even this is actually sort of where I feel like the uh, uh, it's not even that secret or subversive. So one of the things that I like about what I'm doing and the fact that our community is multicultural, people from different countries, different backgrounds, different whatevers, uh, doing things together is that I think one of the challenges we've run into culturally, and this might be an overstatement for America and simplifying it down to like a, a paragraph or something. But so a lot of folks who grew up in a situation like where I did, there was not a lot of diversity in people's backgrounds and other things. And to what extent they were, some people might even not bring it up because it seemed like a not even sure if the environment was going to be accepting or hostile or whatever. <laughs> Maybe when they went to college somewhere else, bring it up. But we wind up with a situation where because of the cost of our college and so on in the United States, the options were either... You come from a wealthy enough background to not go into debt for it, or you wanted to go into debt for it, or else you kind of don't get those cultural formative experiences of my first time meeting and working with somebody else who pretty comfortably is not from my same cultural background, not from my same context, etc. 
And it does feel like some of our divide is things we take for granted. Like it seems so obvious to me from my life experiences, which were different because of a different set of compromise and trade-offs made. Part of my hope is that getting people to better collaborate online across cultures and otherwise is that like at some point you start to realize these people, like people who are different than me from different parts of the world than me, different et cetera, different life situations. We've solved problems together. They're smart people also. They're talented people also. And with it otherwise is not going to happen and more interesting to me online Part of what I like about, so our newer groups, Outpost and Lighthouse, don't do the live weekly meetings like Apollo does on Zoom. There's pros and cons to that too. Instead, leads send me videos and it's more time zone agnostic. It doesn't matter where they are, what their schedule is. I stitch those together, et cetera. But part of the upside is people work together for a long time before they find out that person's much older or younger or that yeah. person's a different background and their family than I am, et cetera. In a way that one of the challenges that we've had for certain kinds of progress in, at least in the United States, is there are some categories where like, you can live next to an atheist for years and not know it. You can live next to someone who might not be the same gender orientation for a while and not find out. There are other things that are impossible in person to not instantly feel some sense of potential otherness as to like, well, I can see that this is not what I knew growing up. And that is already a tough situation to be in. And I think, I think that's the thing that the Supreme Court justice even some year brought up is to like some of the challenges that we have. And online does create this potential. We literally had cases people work together for months. And this is not anything wrong or bad on anybody's side who then eventually would join some other online thing together later where they'd see each other and be like, I had no idea. And like, <laughs> yeah. good, um, <laughs> because that's what allows you to kind of grow from. And again, I don't think anybody decided had this is more just hypothetical or for if they did of of kind of first getting to know somebody in the sense of like, what can they do? What do they think about? What are their thoughts about? And interfacing that way is to me so much more interesting Unless this kind of exists separate from, I don't know, any other axis of being thought about differently or whatever. And so that to me is some of the appeal of the digital that the in-person yeah. out of the pros and cons list has a hard time matching. <laughs>